This week takes us to San Angelo, Texas, where the forensic evidence will make or break the case against a confessed killer. This is episode 70 of Texas 1031. everyone. This is Hannah. This is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas true crime podcast. For episode 70, I figured we'd take a break from child murders and go back to a good old-fashioned abduction, rape, and murder. This one has a lot of forensic elements to it, and it is a good, gory medical case. It's crazy that it's taken almost six years for me to get to episode 70, but hey, better late than never. So picture it. San Angelo, Texas, 1995. Our lovely victim here, Tracy Joy McBride, was born to Jim and Irene McBride on May 27th, 1975, in good old Centerville, Minnesota. Tracy's family described her as constantly smiling, determined, and very enthusiastic. Her sister, Stacy, um, Stacy and Tracy, both spelled with an I-E, I think that deserves an honorary forensic files, let's be real. She said Tracy truly lived her life with a sense of purpose. Unfortunately, you know, these are the classic characteristics of someone who gets murdered. I'm just kidding. But seriously, you know, be rude, be mean, be a bitch. Maybe they'll think twice about killing you because they're scared of you. Just saying. Not to victim blame. Just just be mean. Fuck them. Tracy attended Centennial High School, where she was a cheerleader for the school's soccer team. My school didn't even have a soccer team let alone a cheerleading squad specifically for the soccer team. So that's kind of neat. Her mother, Irene, said that Tracy was a big pastry girl and she enjoyed baking as a hobby. Irene said that the soccer team adored Tracy because she would always bring them chocolate chip cookies. I mean, Irene, I hope that they liked her for more than that, but I get your point. Tracy was obviously a fantastic person, sister, and friend. Unbeknownst to her family, Tracy's ultimate goal was to join the Army after graduating from high school in 1994. Despite the shock and surprise from her parents and sister, soon after graduation, Tracy completed basic training. So, at 5'2 and weighing about 100 pounds, Tracy was only 19 years old when she was assigned to the Goodfellow Air Force Base in San Angelo, Texas, to fulfill her advanced individual training. So this tiny young woman was embarking on a new, impressive, and life-changing chapter in her life. At the Air Force Base, Tracy had volunteered for laundry room duty. The job was simple. Tracy was required to monitor and maintain the base's laundry room for a few hours at night. This wasn't necessarily an informal position. She was still required to be in uniform, and it was still considered to be a job despite her being there voluntarily. Around 9 p.m. on February 18, 1995, about 10 days after arriving at the base, Tracy popped outside and took a quick break. She was on the phone with a friend from back home in Minnesota when she was suddenly abducted from in front of the building. According to a male officer who was also near the laundromat at the time of Tracy's abduction, he attempted to go and help her. He saw she and a man arguing and getting physical with one another. 
But as soon as the officer approached Tracy and the assailant, he was quickly assaulted by the man who kidnapped Tracy. The fellow officer later stated that he was hit on the head, which caused him to pass out on the ground. And when he woke a short while later, Tracy was missing. It would take around two weeks later for more information on what happened to Tracy to come to light. On March 1st, Lewis Jones Jr., a former military soldier, was arrested for assaulting Sandra Lane, his ex-wife and military staff sergeant at the Goodfellow Air Force Base. I only saw this mentioned in one report, but it stated that two days before Tracy went missing, Lewis had evidently kidnapped and raped Sandra. And coincidentally, Sandra was Tracy's drill sergeant. So, after this attack, Sandra filed a report with the Air Force's Office of Special Investigations, commonly known as the OSI. Subsequently, Lewis Jones was apprehended and arrested. In a strange turn of events, during his questioning by the military police regarding his involvement with Sandra Lane's allegations, Lewis actually confesses to kidnapping and murdering Tracy McBride. Lewis claimed that on the evening of February 18th, he went out looking for his ex-wife Sandra on the base, but instead spotted Tracy, which he told police disrupted his entire plan. Other evidence actually showed Lewis had just gotten off the phone with Sandra and knew she wasn't on the base. So the fact that he went out specifically looking for Sandra is somewhat debated. Because of this, it is questioned whether or not the attack on Tracy was opportunistic, premeditated, or a mixture of both. Regardless, during his confession, Lewis tells police that he abducted Tracy and killed her by beating her with a tire iron. Lewis was adamant, though, that he never raped Tracy. Like, why would he, like, I don't know, why he thought that would make anything remotely better or worse? I, I don't know. Like, he just admitted to killing her with a tire iron. So, total dumb fuck. Lewis then led authorities to an underpass on Highway 277 in Coke County, roughly 27 miles from the military base where Tracy's badly beaten body was eventually discovered. Despite the location of Tracy's body, her remains are sent almost four hours away to the Bear County Medical Examiner's Office in San Antonio. The, the last time I had a case in Bear County, some dumb bitch gave me like two stars or wrote a sassy Facebook message or something because I didn't pronounce it correctly. Like, I don't fucking live there. Get a life. Or how about this? Even better, petition to get your fucking county's name spelled like it sounds. Do you really need that silent X? Are we in Louisiana? No. So shut the fuck up and get your own podcast. I, I shouldn't get so irritated, but people are so annoying, you know? She probably still listens, though, and I'll get another message about this. <laughs> Anyways, who is Lewis Jones Jr.? Lewis was born in Shelby County, Tennessee on March 4th, 1950, and grew up in Chicago. Lewis was unfortunately sexually and physically abused as a child. As an adult, he served in the Army for 22 years, was an U.S. Army Ranger, and fought in the Granada Invasion in 1983 and the Gulf War in 1991. Lewis had been married three times and was a single father to his only daughter. Lewis had no criminal record, which is to be expected since that is usually a requirement if you are in the military. During his time in Iraq, Lewis was the recipient of a commendation medal for his response to a ground attack, and in 1993, he was promoted to Master Sergeant and was honorably discharged. Despite not being an active officer in the Army in 1995, Lewis was still affiliated with the military, 
as he was employed as a bus driver on the base at the time of Tracy's abduction and murder. So, raped as a kid, military adult, been in a few wars and a few divorces, and probably killed some people. That's a tricky hand he was dealt. Not too many pros, you know, like that's a a lot of cons. But still, that's no excuse to rape and beat someone to death. Despite Lewis's confession, statements, and cooperation with the police, the district attorney's office believed that in order for this case to proceed, they would need more than just a confession, because there was insufficient proof. So despite the eyewitness at the laundromat, the, the officer that you know got attacked during Tracy's abduction, remember, and the friend of Tracy's recollection of the interrupted phone call, there was no murder weapon, no physical evidence, or real motive yet to be found. The DA essentially said, look, his confession might get suppressed by his attorney or a judge, his lawyer might claim he was insane at the time of the crime, or Lewis himself could turn around and recant, saying he just confessed for the attention and infamy of it all. So we really need hard proof that he did this, on top of the fact that we could be putting a potentially innocent man in prison without substantial evidence which I feel like is is so backwards from many cases we hear about. Usually it's like, oh, cool, you confessed, great. We'll hopefully get some evidence to corroborate that later, but you're totally going to prison. Thanks for the info. So while investigators and prosecutors struggled to find specific reasons to actually indict Lewis Jones, citing they needed more than his own confession, Tracy's autopsy would commence. Now, this is kind of a first for the podcast, okay? So like I mentioned, Tracy's body would be sent to the Bear County Morgue in San Antonio to be evaluated. And at the time, the medical examiner was Dr. Jan Garavia. I think that's how she pronounces it. There's a there's a G and a L-I-A in there. So maybe. Do we want to do forensic files for that one? I don't know. I think she might just be Italian. Most of you might know her by uh, Dr. G. She is slash was a famous medical examiner and pathologist out of Florida who actually had a television show that showcased some of her more interesting or odd cases. So back in 1995, Dr. G worked for Bear County and she presided over Tracy's autopsy. Furthermore, is that Tracy's case was actually featured on Dr. G's show years later, and she takes the viewers through the case and the examination of Tracy's body. So by this being a first for the podcast, I just meant that like, usually it's a Dateline episode or a book or whatever. I've never had a forensic pathologist be the kind of main source for um, a story. Anyway, no one cares. So Dr. G starts Tracy's autopsy and begins with an external exam, simply looking at the body and gaining a comprehensive sense of everything. Immediately, Dr. G notes that Tracy suffered major head trauma, being that half of her skull is crushed in. This Dr. G expected with, you know, news reports stating Tracy had been beaten to death with a tire iron. However, in contrast to her head being fucking caved in, The remainder of Tracy's body was relatively normal. She was still dressed professionally in her pristine army uniform. Her shirt was tucked in, buttons were buttoned, and her belt was fastened. During Dr. G's inventory of Tracy's belongings, she locates in her pocket a man's U.S. Marines ring fastened to a chain. Investigators come to find out that Tracy had a fairly serious boyfriend who was in the Marines at the time. 
Dr. G then examines Tracy's uniform to see if there are any fibers that suggest she was in the vicinity of Lewis Jones, such as carpet fibers, animal hair, or really anything that might lead back to where Tracy had been kept or taken before she was, you know, dumped under the highway. However, to the detriment of the investigation, Tracy's uniform had been thoroughly cleaned. This more or less told Dr. G that Lewis was willing to go to great lengths to ensure that there was no proof of his involvement in Tracy's death. After coming up short in the external exam of Tracy's remains, Dr. G embarked on her internal exam and doing a more in-depth review of her injuries. Dr. G noted that the injuries on Tracy's head were worse than most high-impact car wrecks during the cranial exam. Tracy had a lot of hemorrhaging to the left side of her face. Specifically, though, she had three wounds on her left side of her skull, two on the back, and four on the right. So at least nine blows to her head, each with a separate laceration, along with you know a number of shattered bones. Her fucking ear had been sliced in half, and it was literally hanging on by a tiny little cartilage thread, y'all. The dura, which is the thin lining that encases your brain, that was annihilated, and these wax to her head cut all the way into her brain tissue. So picture getting hit so hard that your thick-ass skull cracks open and your brains get chopped up but like nine times. So tragic. So as her examination continues, Dr. G can actually see an impression of the weapon on Tracy's head, which she characterized as a long linear object consistent with a tire iron, which remember is what Lewis Jones claimed he used to murder Tracy with. This finding is key when it comes to the future trial and prosecution because without him admitting to what weapon he used, this linear shape may have been overlooked. Dr. G even stated that she has performed autopsies on people who were involved in accidents where the vehicles were going upwards of 75 miles per hour, and Tracy's brain damage was infinitely worse than the damage suffered from those victims. I mean, I definitely fucking believe that getting beaten with a metal bar would cause more damage than getting chucked out of a car. So, yeah. Uh, This is the worst, though. Based on the medical forensic evidence, Dr. G believed that Tracy was alive when the violent attack caused her head to split open. So, Tracy most likely endured several of the blows while alive until her head cracked open And then she died with the remainder of the violent attack occurring post-mortem. At this point, the prosecutor assigned to Tracy's case, which was Tanya Pierce, she had been working side by side with Dr. G as the forensic exam progressed. And so far, she has the fact that essentially an imprint of a tire iron was left on Tracy's head. But she needs just a bit more evidence to prove that A, Lewis did really truly do this, And B, Tracy's murder was overkill. Crucially, because Tanya is going to ask for the death penalty and needs aggravating circumstances to support her request. In an effort to secure the evidence they need to prove it was 100% Lewis, the next stage of the investigation was to determine whether sexual assault was a factor. Because remember, Lewis Jones specifically stated that he did not rape Tracy. Unfortunately, though, Not only can evidence of rape be minimal and subtle, 
But Dr. G has also, you know, she has two weeks of decomposition to combat. I mean, when Tracy arrived at the morgue, she had fucking spider webs on her hands and, and they, her hands literally like started to mummify. So Dr. G obviously has her work cut out for her every step of the way. I feel like I keep saying Dr. G, but it is what it is. I got to give her credit. So Dr. G begins to remove Tracy's uniform. She is worried that, you know, based on the state of Tracy's skin and hands, the remainder of her body is going to be just as decomposed. Surprisingly, though, Dr. G notes that Tracy's thighs and abdomen were in pristine condition. Tracy even had a tattoo on her hip that was in perfect condition. I mean, she was essentially completely preserved. Dr. G figured that due to Tracy being hidden from the sun under the bridge of the highway, and the fact that Texas had been unseasonably cold during the two weeks she was deceased, this caused Tracy to be in such a conserved state. However, Dr. G wasn't holding her breath when it came to the actual genital rape exam, primarily because in her experience, many rapists subdue their victims with drugs or alcohol during an attack, which can sometimes eliminate evidence of a forceful assault. The substances used on a victim can prohibit them from fighting back and, in turn, leave no obvious signs of discernible trauma. Luckily, though, Tracy did fight back. Upon examination, Dr. G immediately found lacerations to Tracy's labia, small bruises surrounding her vaginal opening, and a large bruise at her cervix at the end of her uterus. Tracy had a lot of leg and genital trauma, proving that she was most certainly raped, and she abso-fucking-lutely did not cooperate. While Tanya Pierce is preparing to deliver their case and continuing to work with Dr. G, she encounters another stumbling block. Tanya was worried that the defense and jury would believe Tracy had sex with her Marine boyfriend, proving Lewis Jones actually in fact did not rape her. She needed to acquire more proof than just bruising that Lewis Jones had sexually assaulted Tracy. Dr. G performs a rape kit, and samples from the vaginal, anal, and oral regions are collected and sent to the Bear County Forensic Science Center for analysis. A month later, the report is returned, and all of the tests from the swabs taken are negative. There is no indication of sperm. According to Dr. G, though, this attack wasn't about sex. It was about violence and control, and some individuals don't ejaculate. The lack of sperm or semen pointed to the possibility that Lewis Jones may have actually used an object to facilitate that rape and cause the trauma to Tracy's genitals, such as a tire iron. It is also thought that since Tracy's uniform was cleaned, she may have been forced to wash her own body, removing any bodily fluids, such as semen or sperm. Dr. G discusses bruising, explaining that when you get any bruise on any region of your body, it starts off pinkish blue, then progresses to green, yellow, brown, all of those different colors at different stages and times. Tracy's bruising was pinkish blue, indicating that she had most certainly been raped before her death and that her bruising was only around 24 hours old. And if Lewis Jones admits to being with Tracy and killing her, it is safe to say that he was the one who raped her during the time before her death. It was also determined that Tracy's boyfriend had been out of state when she was abducted, so there was zero possibility that she could have had sex with him before her attack. Now, the prosecution has the kidnapping, rape, and murder stacked against Lewis Jones. 
This is the state's narrative based on the medical examiner's report, Lewis's confession, and the police investigation. Tracy McBride is on the phone outside the laundry room at Goodfellow Air Force Base when Lewis kidnaps her at gunpoint. Tracy is taken to Lewis's apartment and then raped while she is still partially dressed in her army uniform. Lewis makes sure Tracy helps clean up the crime scene by having her remove her clothes and forcing her to clean herself with hydrogen peroxide. Lewis then makes her gargle mouthwash and clean her genital area with towels and more peroxide. Lewis washes Tracy's uniform after raping her and makes her walk out of his apartment on towels, believing it would prevent her boots and clothes from picking up fibers, which might link him to the crime. Lewis then takes her to the remote location under the highway and bashes in her head with a tire iron at least nine times, and he abandons her there. Again, this is what the prosecution puts forward. So let's quickly discuss the trial. Lewis Jones was successfully indicted and later tried in a federal court in Lubbock, Texas, just a month after the crime in March of 1995. So he was indicted in March of 1995 is what I'm trying to say. He was charged with, quote, kidnapping resulting in death within special maritime slash territorial jurisdiction, end quote. Remember, the U.S. Attorney's Office and the McBride family hoped to pursue the death penalty as well, okay? So the trial finally got underway on October 16th, 1995, and because of the volume of news coverage, the trial was not held in San Angelo, but in Lubbock, like I mentioned. Lewis's defense was a unique one, to say the least. He claimed he committed the rape and murder because he was suffering from Gulf War Syndrome. According to the John Hopkins Medicine website, Gulf War Syndrome is a frequently used name to describe the unexplained disease that occurred in Gulf War veterans, primarily in 1991. Some symptoms include fatigue, musculoskeletal issues, and cognitive issues. Dementia and amnesia are two examples, um, rashes on the skin, and diarrhea. I don't see a tendency for rape and murder on the symptom list, did you? Yeah. Exposure to chemical warfare agents such as nerve gas is one of the suspected causes of Gulf War syndrome. Just last year, in May of 2022, Dr. Robert Haley, he was a or is a medical epidemiologist who has been investigating Gulf War illness or Gulf War syndrome for almost 28 years at UT Southwestern. He is quoted stating Quite simply, our findings prove that Gulf War illness was caused by sarin, I think that's how you pronounce it, S-A-R-I-N, which was released when we bombed Iraqi chemical weapon storage and production facilities. High-level sarin often results in death, but studies on survivors have revealed that lower-level sarin exposure can lead to long-term impairment of brain function. Yikes. Lewis's defense presented evidence of brain scans that revealed a nerve gas-induced brain injury that influenced his decision-making, which I don't think is something to skim over. I mean, that's scientific proof that he had a brain injury. I mean, I know that, you know, they paid a doctor to, you know, take those scans and provide that witness testimony, but I would find it, you know, compelling if I were a juror. Do I think it excuses, you know, his behavior and his actions? No. Do I think it would have some sort of place in the punishment phase of the trial and determining if he was worthy of the death penalty? Yeah, but that's just me. I just think it's a pretty, pretty, uh, 
heavy piece of evidence, I guess. Despite the defense's expert medical witnesses and brain scans, following days of testimony and a 65-minute jury deliberation, Lewis Jones was convicted and sentenced to death on October 23, 1995. He was sent to the Ellis Unit outside Huntsville, Texas, with the other death row inmates on June 11, 1996. About a month later, in July, he was transferred to the United States Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana, which had been converted into a maximum security prison for death row inmates. Lewis's defense team continued to file appeals. Um, His attorney, Tim Floyd, argued that he should be spared the death penalty and given a life sentence instead, since he suffered brain damage while serving in Iraq. Amid the debate over the fairness of capital punishment and executing a former soldier with Gulf War syndrome, Tracy's family said, it boiled down to this. Lewis Jones deserves to die because Tracy deserved to live. Irene McBride said, quote, closure is a big word. We're not expecting comfort from all of this. All we're expecting is justice, end quote. More than 70 family members and friends wrote letters opposing Lewis's clemency petition. In one of the letters, Dawn Bryant relives the last time she heard from her best friend. Tracy had called and the two were chatting about their boyfriends when the phone was muffled and Tracy started talking to someone else. The phone was disconnected but Don had no idea that Lewis had just abducted her friend from the laundry room. I wish I had called somebody, Don said. I was the last person she spoke loving words to. I was the last person who heard her laugh. After Tracy's death, residents tied yellow ribbons in the small Twin Cities suburb, and a park was later dedicated to her. A choir director wrote a song in her memory because Tracy was active in the choir, band, and theater there. Mike Smith, the family's pastor, described himself as forgiving, but says forgiveness is not an issue here. Quote, this was one of the most heinous crimes. It's not so much vengeance against Lewis Jones, but there needs to be justice for the crime, and justice is the death penalty. End quote. Lewis Jones defense attorney Tim Floyd even called Dr. Haley and was invited to review Lewis Jones's medical records. Dr. Haley concurred that Lewis had head trauma and that it was, quote, responsible for the personality changes that contributed to the tragic events of his crime, end quote. Tim Floyd also contacted U.S. Senator Kay Hutchison, who claimed that Lewis's brain should be examined for signs of brain damage before he was executed. I mean, that sounds like a novel idea. Kay, thank you. In 1999, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to overturn Lewis Jones's death sentence. And on March 17th, 2003, President George W. Bush and the Supreme Court denied Lewis's final clemency request. Let's talk about some of my favorite things that we rarely get to talk about. Final meal and final words. Lewis's final meal, uh, he was fucking boring. Lewis had whole fruit, nectarines, peaches, and plums. Pathetic. Lewis's final words before execution. Lewis looked toward the witness room and mouthed the words, I love you. Draped with a white sheet and strapped to a hospital table, he could see his four supporters and loved ones and the eight members of the media. He could not see the McBride family who were hidden behind one-way glass and he did not acknowledge them at any point. Asked if he had a last statement, (laughs) Lewis said, Although the Lord hath chastised me forth, he hath not given me over unto death. 
Um, I'm pretty sure he hath given you over unto death because you're literally about to be killed, but okay. He then kept singing a hymn, Jesus, keep me near the cross. A Bureau of Prisons official cut into his singing and told him to shut the fuck up. I'm just kidding, but he really did cut him off and um, he had to read the charges of which Lewis was convicted. Lewis kept on singing until U.S. Marshal Jim Kennedy gave the final go-ahead for the execution. The speaker from the death chamber was luckily turned off, but Lewis continued to sing, um, fucking cringy. On March 18th, 2003, at 7.06 a.m., an official announced that the first of the three drugs had been administered. At this point, Lewis's eyes froze open, staring blankly. His lips remained parted, as if halted in mid-song. At 7.07 a.m., the second drug was administered, and he was pronounced dead a minute later at 7.08, after the third drug had been administered. Lewis Jones was the third person to be executed by the federal government since they resumed in 2001. The state of Texas is still offing people every month, don't worry. The other men killed were the Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh and Texas drug lord Juan Raul Garza, both killed in June of 2001. Lewis was also the last person killed until July 14th, 2020. So that's kind of a long break in between there. After witnessing Lewis's execution, Irene McBride is quoted saying, Today was a day of justice for Tracy. Today, Lewis Jones finally was made accountable for his actions. And today, he will meet his ultimate judge. Everybody is glad this is over. The healing is not over. It's just the beginning. In a statement later read by his attorney, Lewis Jones wrote, I accept full responsibility for the pain anguish, and the suffering I caused the McBrides for having taken Tracy from them. Well, doesn't that just make up for everything, Lewis? Thank you, you fucking idiot. Tracy McBride was put to rest at Minnesota's Fort Snelling National Cemetery, and her family established the Tracy Joy McBride Scholarship Fund in her honor. And that is the murder of Tracy McBride. Um, questions and theories. I have some questions and theories mainly about Gulf War syndrome. Like, I, I just don't really know what to ask necessarily. I kind of found this section difficult to put into words, I guess. Um, I guess I would ask how Dr. Haley could prove that the brain injury is directly correlated with Tracy's murder. What parts of the brain were affected? Does this syndrome cause violence or does it just affect the brain? And if you get the short end of the stick and it affects the impulse control part of your brain, you can just go, you know, and kill somebody randomly. Like what if it just affects your motor function and then what you can't like walk or eat or, you know what I mean? Like why does it, does it specifically target certain parts of your brain? Do they think that, you know, this syndrome was also the reason for Lewis's attack on Sandra two days prior to Tracy's attack? Did he, you know, did he not murder Sandra because he knew he could easily be linked to her by, you know, being her ex-husband, so he chose a random woman on the base to attack instead? Or did he know Sandra was Tracy's drill sergeant, and so this, in some sort of way, was a way to hurt Sandra as well? I think him cleaning her clothes and making her take precautions with, you know, leaving evidence behind or carrying evidence off with her shows that he was in control and he knew exactly what he was doing, or he at least was thinking clearly enough to make sure those things got done. 
But immediately confessing to abducting and killing Tracy when he wasn't even confronted about it, he was being confronted about Sandra. So immediately confessing to the crimes against Tracy, but not admitting to her rape seems very bizarre. Like he isn't in control and he's just floundering. Like I just don't get the, you know, the thought process there. He obviously wasn't thinking clearly. He was probably freaking out as anyone would when you're confessing to murder. Um, what about his, you know, his other exposure to war and death? Do doctors think factors like that could, you know, hold any weight psychologically that, you know, those things could have affected his behavior in concert with Gulf War syndrome? Like, I'm not doubting his um, diagnosis with that. I'm just, those are questions I would have to ask medical professionals. I think that's very important to see in combination with what he's experienced and what he's been diagnosed with, if that could, you know, snowball into why he did what he did. Um, do I think he deserved the death penalty with how much mitigating evidence was provided? That being Gulf War syndrome and the proof that he, you know, suffered from it. I, I don't know. I go back and forth. Um, what he did was outrageous and his ex-wife is lucky to be alive, to be honest. Um, on speaking of ex-wife, I just immediately made me think of his daughter. Like he was evidently a decent single parent. Like, I don't know, that cra is crazy to me too, that you can father and parent a child, but maintain this like awful side of you where you're abusing and raping and killing women. Um, that's nuts. But back to the um, deserving the death penalty factor. I do think it is a pretty power pretty powerful statement, you know, coming from a doctor who has been researching this topic for almost 30 years to say definitively that, yes, this man had this illness and his brain has been affected negatively and most certainly caused this violence and attack. I think that is worth something, but I also think what he did was unforgivable and fuck him and his Gulf War syndrome. Like, I don't, I don't know enough about him and the illness to make an educated opinion on this outcome. But you know what? If the family wanted the death penalty, then I think at the end of the day, that's fine with me. He's he's already dead, so there's nothing we can do about it now, you know? Uh, anyways, that is all I have for you this episode. Reach out to me on social media or email if you have any questions or theories of your own or if you have a case suggestion. I keep finding other cases to write about, so that thick book I kept mentioning is pending for now. But I will be back with more Texas true crime. So if anyone is listening, happy episode 70 and happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.